So we're going to be in the book of Hosea today. The book of Hosea is in the Old Testament. Uh, if you want to grab one of those paperback Bibles underneath you, do that. Um, maybe if one of you tell me the NLT page number, you can just yell it out um, so that we can all find it. Google the book of Hosea if you want. Some of those verses are going to be on the screen. Um, if you, you, uh, the paperback ones are kind of just scattered throughout. You can grab one of those or just, again, grab your phone. 532, people, 532. We're going to be all over in that book, so just kind of hold it open in front of you. We love, we don't love the Bible, but we do love the God who uses the Bible to make us more like him, and so that's why we devote so much of our time to it. So we're starting a new series today called This Is Us, uh, it'll, and it's a, it's a, I'm really excited to preach it, and so let me um, pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for how it challenges us and encourages us. Father, I just, I need to hear from you today. Um, I need to hear from you to leave behind my shame. I need to hear from you to leave behind my own anxieties. God, I I need to hear from you for so many things, as do each of us. And so, Father, I'm I'm humbled that you would even ask people like me or Vanessa or Steph to speak uh, with you and for you. And so, God, may, um, as the psalmist says, may the meditations of of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing unto you, and may they be profitable for your people um, today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at this clip here. Hi. Hi. So, I was trying to remember myself tonight, Jack. The person I used to be, and then I started remembering you too. And... I'm not the only one who gave up on my dreams, Jack. We both did, right? And we, we realized an even bigger dream, an even more massive dream. And I'm, I'm still really upset. And I don't think I'm ready to talk about any of that yet, but I shouldn't have let you leave. And not just because of all of the beautiful things you said, I shouldn't have let you leave because that's not what we do. That's not who we are. That's not us. I know that. That's not us. I know that I'm not deeply unhappy, and I'm not unfulfilled, and you're not an alcoholic, and you're not your father. And even when I watch Tom Hanks, I sit there and I think to myself, he's not so great. And who does that? Who watches Tom Hanks and thinks, you know what? I'm married to a man that's better than that. You don't know everything about me. Yes, I do. No, I know Rebecca, you don't. I'm drunk you. right now. I have been drunk all day. I have been drunk for weeks. And I thought I had it under control like the first time, but I have a problem, Rebecca. But I've hidden it from you for a very long time. And I've I've hidden it from my kids. And I need to get a handle on it before I can walk back into that house. I'm sorry. Baby, I... I'm very embarrassed. And I am very sorry. I need to fix this on my own. 
you're not watching the NBC show This Is Us, I honestly do not know what you're doing with my life. I mean, your life. Because <laughs> if you're not watching it, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. You know, I'm not leading you well. If you're not watching it, what is going on? Download Hulu today. You know what I'm saying? Um, if you don't watch the show, which might be the only sin that we judge you for as a church, okay? Just let you know if you're not watching it. Um, that's Jack and Rebecca Pearson. Uh, their marriage is on the rocks. It has been for a number of years. It's gotten worse as their kids have grown older. They've got two kids, Kevin and Kate, and then another, Randall. As their kids have gotten older, they find that their marriage is just getting more and more tense, and it reaches kind of a high point of intensity um, in the events leading up to this episode, such that Rebecca sends Jack to a friend's house to live so they can figure all of this out. And when Rebecca comes to find Jack to apologize and say, you need to come home, she finds out things are worse than she thought they were. Jack said, I'm drunk right now. I've been drunk all day. I've been drunk for weeks. And I've hidden it from you for a very long time. And the look of shock and betrayal on Rebecca's face is so clear. This look of terror as she comes to grips with the fact that her marriage is not what she thought it was, as she comes to grips with how great the fracture is that exists between them. And this story of shock and betrayal and heartbreak, this is a story that a lot of us can resonate with in a lot of ways, and it's a story that the author of our book in front of us today, Hosea, that he can resonate with too. So we're going to listen to Hosea this morning and and Hosea, look at Hosea chapter one with me. Hosea is an Old Testament prophet. Old Testament prophets, their job was simple. Their, well, it was simple, but it was hard. Their job was to keep Israel in alignment with the Lord. Israel had a covenant relationship with God, and when they began to drift out of that relationship, or sprint out of that relationship, God raised up prophets to blow the whistle and get them to come back into that covenant relationship. Hosea is one of them. He's one of the minor prophets. About a third of the Old Testament is books of prophecy. And prophecy, as you and I think of it in Scripture, is often very different than how you and I think of it. Because you and I think of prophecy of like, ooh, end of the world stuff. Most of prophecy is not foretelling, telling the future. It's forth forth-telling. It is a call back into righteousness, and that's what Hosea's book is all about. But the way that Hosea is going to call Israel back into faithfulness with the Lord is bizarre. It's bizarre. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. It says, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived and prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. God says to Hosea, go, marry a prostitute, a woman of the night, as my seventh grade English teacher used to call it, a woman of ill repute. Go and marry a prostitute. Why? This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. This is the summary of Hosea's whole book. It is the story of his marriage to a prostitute, a woman who is not faithful to him, all to illustrate how Israel acts and behaves like a prostitute toward God, toward the Lord. And what went through Hosea's mind when God said, hey, by the way, I need you to go do this. Hosea doesn't say, 
The prophets are all asked to do weird things. Ezekiel like eats feces. He does all these strange things. The prophets are as much poets as they are like performance artists. And now Hosea's marriage is about to go and be part of this performance art because he doesn't tell us how he feels. He just tells us what he did. In verse three, he says, Hosea married Gomer, which I think we can all agree is a very attractive name. (laughs) Hosea married Gomer, hubba hubba, uh, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. Uh, Hosea and Gomer will have three children, two sons, one daughter, oddly, just like Jack and Rebecca Pearson. But something happens as their children are going up. One night, uh, Gomer just doesn't come home. One night, Gomer just never shows up. She, she went out earlier in the day, and afternoon turned into evening, and evening turned into night. And now Hosea is lying awake, staring at the ceiling, wondering where his wife has gone. And we don't know how long it is exactly. It could be days, could be weeks, could be months. Some scholars even suggest that it could have been a period of years that overnight Hosea was turned into a single dad. But then something else happens in uh, Hosea chapter three. Flip over to chapter three. After Gomer has been gone, ostensibly to be a woman of the night, to be a prostitute, look at chapter three. The Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. And so for 15 pieces of silver and five measures of barley and a measure of wine, this is not chump change, this is a lot of money, Hosea goes out in the night and buys his wife back from the man who has prostituted her. He has to go out and buy his wife back from her John. And he takes her back into his home, all to show that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. This is not just a story for Hosea, and it's not just a story for us. This is truth. This is telling us something about ourselves. This is telling us something about Israel, that the Lord still loves them, even though they turn away. Hosea's marriage to Gomer, it was really, truly heartbreaking. It was painful. It was filled with shock and betrayal, just like Rebecca discovers that night when she knocks on her friend's door. Hosea's marriage to Gomer, though, is ultimately a picture of God's marriage to his people, Israel. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, the relationship between God and Israel, uh, there's all sorts of language for it. There's Lord and servant language. There's maker and creation language. There's father and son language. But that intimate language comes in because God describes himself as Israel's husband. He takes a whole people and, and says, you are my bride and I will be your husband. And Isaiah 54, it's not on the screen, but Isaiah 54, God says, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who called, who is called the God of all the earth. The problem that Hosea's marriage displays is that just like Gomer is not a faithful wife to Hosea, Israel is not a faithful wife to the Lord. They have eyes for other lovers, and what began as innocent flirting with other gods has now emerged to a full-blown affair, full-blown adultery, so that the Lord says in Hosea chapter 5, verse 3, he says, you have left me as a prostitute leaves her husband. He says, you 
are utterly defiled. You have left me, the Lord says, as a prostitute leaves her husband. You know, Gomer leaves her husband's bed for the bed of other men, and Israel has left the worship of Yahweh for the worship of other gods. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He says, they ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. Longing after other idols has, has made them foolish. They have played the prostitute, serving other gods, and deserting their God. You see, Gomer left Hosea's bed for the beds of other men. Israel has left the worship of Yahweh for the worship of other gods, and we do the same thing. This is us. This is us. This story is our stories. The people of Jesus, you and I, we are called the bride of Christ just as much as Israel was the bride of the Lord. Ephesians chapter five, a passage all about marriage and husbands and wives, says that the mystery of marriage is profound, that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriage represents God's relationship with us. The people of Jesus are the bride of Christ. A bride for whom Christ died as Ephesians 5 says, to make her holy and clean and washed by the cleansing of God's word. But we, just like Israel, are just as adulterous. We, like Israel, are just as fickle. We flirt and even go beyond flirting with other gods. Israel's turned away from God. They, they, they have forsaken him from idols. They have forsaken him for other gods. And you know, of all the language for sin in scripture, breaking the law, missing the mark, living outside the bounds, maybe none is as compelling as this language of idolatry and ultimately of marriage to God because our sin is not just this bad habit. Our mistakes are not just mistakes. They are the, these are things in our lives that leave God at the altar, a spurned lover. That's what our sin does. Our sin isn't just this or that. It, it, it leaves God holding the bag. It leaves God stunned and betrayed. God is Rebecca knocking at the door only to discover the hidden habit of the heart. The only difference is between God and Rebecca is that God knew the whole time. Yeah, and in Hosea's time, Idolatry was a little more neat and clean, right? You would go to temple uh, one you know, in the morning, and then that night you would sacrifice a cow in front of a, an Ashtoreth pillar. Uh, you would uh, read the Torah in the morning and pray to the god Molech that night, which you had as a little statue inside your house somewhere. Uh, you, might, you might give to the temple your money, but you also might go uh, to the temple of Baal and have sex with the temple priestesses. It, it was a little more concrete. It was a little more obvious. And so it's easy to think that for us, idolatry is a thing of the past, that it's something that we have moved on from in our more uh, encultured, sophisticated time, but you would be wrong. See, listen to me. Scripture is not this document that is ancient and historical that we go rifling through until we find something that connects. Scripture always perfectly and adequately diagnoses our hearts. And so when Scripture says that we are idolaters, it's true. We worship idols and so the question becomes, what is an idol? If an idol for us now is not going to worship the god Baal or going to worship the god Molech or building an Ashtoreth pole in our backyard, then what is idolatry? Look at what Tim Keller has to say. He says, what, what's an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything that you seek to, get, that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is what you go to asking for something that only God can give you. 
He says, an idol is whatever you look at in your heart of hearts and say, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. An idol is whatever you look at and you say, if I have that, then I'll have security. An idol is this thing that you say, if I I have that, I'll feel significant. There are many ways to describe that relationship to something, but perhaps the best one, Keller says, is worship. Listen, you have never met a person who isn't worshiping somebody. Your most atheistic friend who just hates everything about God, still a worshiper because he's a human. It's impossible for us not to worship something, for us to not lay the weight of our souls on something to give us satisfaction. Martin Luther went so far as to say that our hearts are factories for idolatry. We just continually pump out new things to worship. And so maybe again, you don't worship Baal or Molech, but you might, you might think in your heart of hearts that I will be satisfied if I have power and influence. And if you think that, you're worshiping the idol of power. You might think, you know, if I can have this kind of pleasure, if I can have this quality of life, and that'll make me feel satisfied when you think that you're worshiping at the idol of comfort. When you think, I'll feel secure and significant when I'm recognized for my accomplishments, you'll, when, when I'm excelling in my work, that's when you're worshiping at the idol of, at the idol of achievement. And by the way, if you want to know what the idol in my life is, it's achievement that I will feel significant and secure and frankly loved when I, my work is recognized and when my accomplishments are recognized. You, you might have a, an idol in your life of religion where you say, I will be satisfied and secure when I adhere to the moral codes of my religion and I excel at those things. You, you, everybody in their 20s goes through this at some point you, and then even beyond. You know, I'll be satisfied and secure if I find Mr. or Mrs. Wright and if they love me. That's an idol. You might have an idol that that says, if my children are perfect and my parents are happy with me, then then I'll feel secure, but that's the idolatry of your family. You you might have political idolatry or ideology idolatry. That's a fun little rhyming word. If you believe that, you know what, I will feel good about my life when I wake up and Donald Trump is not the president anymore. Or I wake up feeling great every day because Donald Trump is the president. It's when I and my people are right, that's, that's when I'll be happy. That's, that's ideology, ideology, idolatry. It's even hard to say those words. Some of your friends, the idol that they worship at, even though they insist that they do not worship, is that, you know, I am so cool and hip and independent from any organized religion. I'm living by a self-made morality. That, the idol in their life is just irreligion. You can, I, you can have an idol of religion just as quickly as you can have an idol of irreligion. And Hosea's charge to the people of Israel and his charge to us is that we have left Yahweh for idols. That we, that we have gone to useless pieces of wood and metal, that we have settled for trifling relationships and meaningless sex, for too tightly held political ideology, that we have held on to our liberalism, our conservatism, that we have held on to this talent or this achievement, that we have held on to this, that, this addiction or that preference. But in doing so, we have left God behind. And in our most honest moments, we come to realize that in our hearts, this idolatry means, this idolatry means that it's not Jesus only for us, it's Jesus and. 
It's Jesus and my opinions, Jesus and my comfort, Jesus and my achievement, Jesus and my money, Jesus and my perfect family, uh, Jesus and my ideology, left, right, center, whatever it is, Jesus and my weird theology, Jesus and we are constantly doing this. And here's ultimately God's problem with that, or at least two of the many that he has. The first is that when we go after idols for advice and for wisdom and for meaning, we are always disappointed because they cannot bear up the weight of a human soul. They can't. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the person that you wish was your boyfriend or your girlfriend, they can't hold up the weight of your soul. Your spouse cannot hold up the weight of your soul like Jesus can. And so we keep running after money and achievement and politics and all these kinds of things to satisfy us. But Jesus' problem with that, the Lord's problem with that, is it leaves us thirsty every time. That's the problem with sin. The reason God hates sin isn't because he just likes to be mad at you. The reason God hates sin is because he watches you chase after all of this stuff and you keep being thirsty. That's his problem. That's why he wants to push push the idols out of the way just so it's him only because it's only him that satisfies us. Jesus says that only his water can truly satisfy. But we keep, as Jeremiah says, digging these wells that run dry. That's the problem with idolatry. And at the end of the day, the problem with idolatry too is that it leaves God at the altar. We treat God like we wouldn't treat like the first, we, we treat God like we wouldn't treat like our earliest boyfriends or girlfriends. We have divided loyalties toward God that we would not accept even in a high school relationship. If our high school boyfriend or girlfriend had been, well, I don't know if we even had texting even when I was in high school. The world is an amazing place. But if you had, were texting somebody on the side, if, if your girlfriend in high school was texting somebody on the side, that, 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 that wouldn't be okay even at that point, much less in a marriage. That's what God is wrestling through. They have left the Lord for idols. So our question is, what then? Our question is, here's our hearts that kind of go running after all of these things. And they, and they try to be satisfied in all of these things. It leaves, God, it leaves us thirsty. It leaves God at the altar kind of holding the bag. Now what? What does God have to say about this? Take a look at this clip now. You are my husband, and I am your wife, and if you have a problem, we will fix it together. I just need you to get in the car so we can go home. God looks at our hearts, which are so divided and all over the place, and he sets aside the shock and the betrayal and he looks at us and he says, get in the car. Look at Hosea chapter 11, verses eight through 11. These are, this, this little part of the book, you should just like go home and like savor this week. Chapter 11, verses eight through 11. He says, how could I give you up, Israel? 
How could I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. No, I will not completely destroy Israel for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy. For someday, someday the people will follow me and I, like the Lord, will, I, the Lord, will roar like a lion, and when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria. And if you have your own Bible, you should circle this. And I will bring them home. And I will bring them home. Rebecca looks at him and says, get in the car, we're going home. The Lord says, I will bring them home again, far from being disgusted by our adultery, far from being filled with wrath, far from being pissed, far from wanting to smack you down. God looks at your divided heart. God looks at my divided heart. He looks at us with all of our affections, so out of whack and chasing all of these dozens of things. He looks at us and he says, if you have a problem, we have a problem. We're going to fix it together. He says, get in the car. He says in chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, I will heal you of your unfaithfulness. I will heal you of your unfaithfulness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever, and I will be to Israel, I will be to you like a refreshing dew from heaven. He says, he doesn't say, well, you better clean yourself up and come home, you whore. He doesn't say, uh, you better pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't say, work harder, follow the rules. He doesn't say, shame on you, you ugly thing. He says, you know what, I will heal you of your unfaithfulness because there is no amount of work that you or I could ever do, no amount of righteousness that we could ever achieve that would heal us of our unfaithfulness. And so God says, I will heal your unfaithfulness. Get in the car. He says, get in the car. If you've got a problem, then we've got a problem. Get in a car. We're going to go home. The Lord says, I will bring them home. This is the gospel. Listen, if you've been to whacked out churches, or if you've been to really good churches, then you need to be reminded of this. This is the gospel. The gospel is, this is the good news. Not that we're just terrible and wretched and our affections are so out of whack. It's that God sees that and says, get in the car. It's that we are loved extravagantly. Tim Keller, again, kind of my spirit animal, says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. I mean, just when you think you came to grips with your lowest low, guess what? There's more down there. There's more down there. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. My dude, Tim, every time. This is us, guys. That, this, 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 this is us. If you want to know what Regen's about, if you want to know who Jesus is, if you, this is us. Sinful and flawed and blemished and wrinkled, idolatrous, adulterous, flirtatious. This is us, loved and accepted and pursued, and cherished, and longed for. Romans 5, Paul, Paul says something crazy. He, he, it's not on the screen, so you may just need to listen to me, but he says, he says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And, and in verse 7, he says this thing that's hard to follow. He says, most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. He's got an Eagle Scout thing, but I'm not going to die for him. That's his thing. He says, 
Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Oh, he's an Eagle Scout and a cop. Okay, well, maybe I'll die for him. He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Can I translate that? God sent Jesus to die for us while we were still whoring ourselves to idol after idol after idol. That we, we are, this is, here's the bad word. Spiritually, we are nothing but sluts. Spiritually, we are the worst of the worst. And God knocks on the door and he says, get in the car God didn't wait for us to get better. He didn't give us rules to follow. He came running. He came to the street corner where we were selling ourselves, our bodies and our, our souls, our marriages, all of these things that were selling out to the, the highest bidding idol. And he comes and he buys us and he purchases us not with barley and wine or, or wheat. And he doesn't purchase us with silver or gold which lose their value. First Peter says it was the precious blood of Christ the sinless, spotless Lamb of God with which he purchased us. So let me give you kind of where we go from here in a couple different ways. First of all, this is us. You want to know who we are? This is us. This is our story. This is the thing that we sing about and pray about and rejoice in every stinking day. Man, if that sounds compelling to you, you're home. You know what I'm saying? We, are, we didn't even know that you were here and we loved you. I'm looking at people in this room that like weren't here in March, and I think to myself, like, how, how did we ever do life without you? Think about people that weren't here at the beginning of September. I'm like, how, what? listen, not only will we tell you this story and pray and speak the story over you for the rest of your life, man, like we will live in the glory of this together just to let other people know that this is true, that yeah, you are exhausted from chasing after these idol, other idols, but man, have we got good news. So let me give you this. Jesus always operates on this spectrum from invitation to challenge. And uh, this was a really great graphic until Google screwed it up. So imagine challenge is on the other side by the line. Why will you not work with me? Anyway, Jesus is always inviting us and challenging us. It's a great question to ask on a Sunday morning. It's a great question to ask when you're reading scripture or praying, Jesus, what invitation do you have for me? What challenge do you have for me? Okay. There's a story in John 8 where a woman who was caught in adultery, seems like a theme, this woman who was caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. Now, the people who dragged her in front of Jesus, I think were trying to capture Jesus, put him into a trap, but Jesus looks at this woman and all these guys want to stone her for committing adultery. And Jesus says to this gathered crowd, let, you, let the one who is without sin, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And so all these men in my mind, I have the, and, and by the way, you didn't stone somebody with a pebble. You grabbed like a boulder. So all these guys are like holding this boulder ready to chuck it at this woman. And Jesus says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And they realize, well, that's not me. And so the text says, one by one, they set down their rocks and walked away. And so Jesus looks at this woman who is lying on the ground within an inch of her life, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're, they're nowhere to be found. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. Invitation. Go and sin no more. Challenge. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Invitation. Challenge, go and sin no more. So let me, let's, let's back this up. The challenge today, the challenge is go and sin no more. Lay down the idols, get off the hamster wheel. Like if you need help, we'll help you. Like some of, the, some of the idols in our life are like straight up addictions. Let's talk about that. Let's walk through it together. 
Some of, the, some of the idols in our life are deeply ground in wounds that we have, that we picked up for our life. I'm not good enough. I, I'm never going to be safe. Uh, I'm not man enough. I, I'm not this kind of woman. Let's, let's work through that together. That, that, that's one piece. And that, by the way, is what we're going to kind of discover next week on Discover Your Type. Um, we're all going to sit around and talk about our childhood wounds. It's going to be great. You want to be there. There's pizza. Um, but... But some of those are just, you need to stop worshiping the idol of money. And the way that you re- remedy that is by generosity. You, you need to stop worrying so much. The way you remedy that by, is by seeking out God in prayer. The way, that, the, way that you, the, the way that you remedy your addiction to work is by rest. I mean, it's, there's always this counterintuitive way that the gospel works. The challenge is lay down the idol. Put it down. Go and sin no more. But the invitation is, gosh, if it takes you 17 years to pry the idol out of your hand, at every single moment of the way, Jesus still loves you. At every single moment of the way, with every failure and every mistake and every return back to the well that you keep thinking might satisfy but runs dry, every return back, Jesus will love you every single time and he will come back time and time again to buy you off the street corner. That's the invitation. That's the challenge. Do you see what I'm saying? Because this is us. This is us. This series is all about who we are. And, and, and you know, this, this, sermon, this, this kind of message is going to smell differently to two different kinds of people. Some of you, this is like the best. This is like pumpkin spice latte on a fall morning. <sighs> smell. Do you know what I mean? Like rub my face in it. Smell. Um, because you're, you have been living under the illusion of your own wretchedness. And the enemy has loved to just pour gas on that fire. And so today I'm telling you that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. But to some of you, this smells like, Vanessa, I heard you use this illustration about like leaving a pumpkin in your car. Probably got nasty, you know? Some of, some of this for us, this sermon smells like a pumpkin that we like left on the side of our house and forgot to throw like away. It smells gross. And it's because it's breaking the illusion of our own righteousness. It's breaking the illusion that you were ever that good in the first place because even your self-righteousness is just as idolatrous and just as adulterous as, as the prostitute. But in either case, this is us. In either case, we are more wicked than we ever dared believe and more loved than we ever could have hoped. In either case, whether you're offended or encouraged, this is us. This is us. This is the heart of what we believe this series is ultimately going to land in a place of generosity. We teach on money about once a year. Why? Because you think about money every day. But it's possible to be very generous with your money and very withholding with your forgiveness. And in that case, you're not a generous person. And this is us. You know who we are? We are pervasively generous. There is not a thing that we have in our hands that we wouldn't freely give away whether that's our forgiveness, whether that's our legacy and the story that we're writing with our lives, whether that's our, our resources, our time, our treasure, our talent, there's nothing that we wouldn't give away. But before God ever asked for a dollar, before God ever asked you to do anything, before God ever asked you to take a step in faith or, or to forgive somebody, he always tells you who you are before he asks you to do something. Hear me, hear me on that. He always tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. The book of Ephesians, we preached this like two years ago. First three chapters are like, this is who you are, people. And then it finally gets into, okay, and by the way, because this is who you are, do these things. And so before we go anywhere in this series, before we talk about being generous with anything that we have in our hands, we've got to begin in this place that we are extravagantly loved. It's just who we are. 
We are loved by the Father who purchased us with his son and filled us with his spirit so that we would have a down payment and guarantee that he loves us. Because Paul actually in Romans 5 um, says something else fascinating. He says in Romans 5, just before he talks about when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the right time, he said, this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has poured the Holy Spirit to fill our heart, poured the Holy Spirit into our hearts to fill us with his love. It's a down payment and a guarantee of his love for us that becomes a full installment and glory. Here's the only thing I want you to know today. God loves you so much. And he loves you so much that he's just not gonna let you like be where you're at and keep running around in the mud. He's not gonna let you do that. But let me tell you what, he loves you. So let's pray. Um, Jesus, we um, just need you. And we confess that the 17 things in our hearts that are out of whack that... Um, God, we have failed to love you well. We have hoard ourselves out. We have sold ourselves off. But Jesus, you keep coming to buy us back. And so, Father, even as we eat this meal together, help us remember who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.